Believe it or not, we are going to start winding up our discussion of the kingdom of God. Uh, believe it or not. Uh, we have maybe three or four weeks left, and um, today's message, as a result of starting to wind things down, may seem, some of it, a little bit like review. Uh, we're going to look at some truths that we have already covered, probably, but, but we're also going to look at them from a little different angle. Uh, to this point, uh, in our discussion of, of God's kingdom, starting way back in the beginning of, of February, we have spent most of our time this year kind of loosely working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, which is the Bible book that is, uh, talks most about the kingdom of God. And we've gotten almost all of our content as we've done this directly from the lips of Jesus, who of course does a lot of teaching in the book of Matthew. And among other things, we have learned uh, about how to enter the kingdom of God, we have learned um, what the kingdom life should look like. We have learned how the kingdom of God grows, uh, how it deals with opposition, how the kingdom relates to the Old Testament kingdom of Israel. We've learned uh, who the king is and what he's like and what that means about what we should be like. We have, uh, in the last three weeks, we've, we've looked at what it looks like to live a kingdom life together as the people of God and to deal with issues that come up in the church family. And of course, over the last three weeks, um, the messages that I've had for you have been extremely practical in nature. I've been giving you detailed step-by-step -step instructions a lot of the time from Jesus uh, and his teachings in, in dealing with issues like forgiveness and confronting sin and, and we as believers looking out for one another and that sort of thing. Today is going to be kind of different. You are not going to walk out here today with a list of things to do. Uh, you are going to walk out here, out of here today really with a list of things to believe. And there are probably already things that you will say you believe and you probably do, but I want you to believe them not just in your head, but I want them to get into your heart so that they impact your life. Because trust me, if you really believe the right things, particularly in the areas that we're going to be talking about today, it will have an impact on how you live. Uh, let me pray for us right now and ask the Holy Spirit to do that because he's the one that moves the knowledge from our head to our heart. Father, by your Spirit, move in us. Speak to us. Holy Spirit, we invite you right now to um, just exert your lordship in our lives. Open up our ears that we might have the ears of a disciple, as it says in your word. Help us, Lord, to understand what you have for us, and Lord, not just at the head level, but I, I pray that you would, uh, that you'd find a place down deep inside of us that would receive what you have for us today, and that you'd apply it in a transformative way to our lives, to our relationships, um, and to our relationship with you as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Uh, please turn to First Peter with me, First Peter, and when you get to First Peter, you can get to chapter two. If you were in my Sunday school class this morning, you probably already have a bookmark there. Um, we are no longer in the book of Matthew right now. Uh, when you get to, to 1 Peter, at this point, we are reading now in a letter that was written maybe 25 to 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, which means by the time Peter writes this, this first letter, which is meant to be circulated to Christians over a, a, a huge section of Asia Minor, and even beyond, these Christians, by this time, okay, it's like 62, 63 A.D. now, so these Christians, by this time, have had the better part of a generation to kind of figure out what it's like to follow the Lord Jesus in, in the midst of a world that is usually hostile to what they believe. And in a lot of ways, if you know anything about First Peter, you know that's kind of the theme of the book. 
How are Christians supposed to live and conduct ourselves in a world that doesn't understand us? Tends to be suspicious of us and, and many times even persecutes, persecutes us. How are kingdom people supposed to conduct their lives in the midst of the kingdoms of this world? That's what First Peter is largely about and I can't think of a more relevant question for us to have to deal with today. And there is probably no better passage in the whole New Testament for learning what it means to be God's kingdom people in this world than 1 Peter 2, verses 9 to 12. So you can turn there with me now. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. These are, if I may say, some of the most foundational and probably memorization-worthy verses um, in the New Testament right here. So let's, let's read this short passage together. Just 1 Peter, starting in verse 9 of chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. <clears throat> Peter here identifies two concepts that, that we absolutely need to understand if we're going to really live successful kingdom lives in this world. And those two critical concepts are identity and mission. Identity and mission, or to put it in even simpler terms, as Christians, okay, who are we and what are we doing here? Who are we and why are we here? And again, I'm speaking today to Christians. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, my prayer is that, that through this time uh, you will be moved to jealousy by what you hear. You'll look around you and see Christians applying this word to their lives and recognize that there is something for you that you don't have that God is offering to you this morning and you'll see what that is. But when, when Peter talks about the identity and mission of people here, he's talking about the identity and the mission of Christians, believers in the Lord Jesus. So first, identity, identity. This is a huge topic for all of us. We've got to find out who we are. We have to find out who we are. A, a few of you know this, that about, about a week and a half ago, I received a new identity because somebody hacked my Facebook account and, and they started sending friend requests out in my name to some of my friends. And a few of you I saw took the bait. And so you became friends with the Paul Titus, who was a 67-year-old woman whose birthday is September 17th, I noticed which was the day I got hacked, so it was like happy birthday. I, I think this person has been shut down, um, but for a while there were two of me running around on Facebook. And I don't know, maybe that's the first time it's ever happened to me. I've been on Facebook for many years. Maybe that's happened to you, I don't know, but for some of you it's more than a laughing matter because it isn't just your Facebook profile people can, can get. What we call identity theft today is a pretty serious threat, right? Someone could steal your social security number, they could find out your birthday, they get your credit card information, and they could do you a lot of harm, especially financially. Now, what does identity theft really mean? Can somebody really steal your identity? No. Because your true identity is not determined, believe it or not, by your bank account, your email ID, your picture, or, your, or even your social security number. That's not your identity. Okay, unfortunately, what can get stolen from Christians and often does is the knowledge of our identity the assurance 
of who we really are. How do you answer the question, who are you? How do you if somebody asks you, or if someone comes up to me and says, tell me about yourself, okay? We're starting a new uh, small group season, so you might get together in your small groups and you go around the circle and you say, tell me about yourself. Well, how are you going to answer that question? Traditionally, in this world, that answer has, has always differed depending on where people live in the world and what their culture is like. For example, in most Asian cultures, most Eastern cultures, where, where you ask somebody to, to, to tell you about them and you say, who are you? They'll say something like this, who am I? Well, I am the third son of, of, of the so-and-so family. My father's name is this, and my family comes from this particular village. And that's how you would think of yourself in the East. In the West, it's been a little bit different. We don't define ourselves, for many years, in America and in Western nations, we don't so much define ourselves by our family connections. We tend to find our identity in our function in the world. So somebody will say, tell me about yourself. And you'll say, oh, I, I build houses. I'm an accountant. I'm a welder. I'm a pastor. I'm a musician. I'm a graphic designer. I'm a stay-at-home mom. We define ourselves by our function. But in recent years, even that kind of thinking is being upended because we are now losing our traditional ideas about identity, and this is happening in several ways. Sometimes it happens because of our experience, and some of you will relate to this. It happens because of what happens to a person early in their life. You may have gotten the idea growing up, maybe from your parents or for somebody else, that, that you were a unique and valuable individual and that you were special. In fact, you weren't just special, you were the greatest thing since sliced bread. And your parents, or your grandparents maybe, or, or, or maybe somebody else just blew up your ego. And so now your life is dedicated to proving yourself to be that person that you were always told that you were, or could be, or had the potential to be, or, or should be. And that's why you've been living, and that's your identity. On the other hand, you may have heard from some important person in your life that you were a failure that you were a loser, that, you, that you'd never amount to anything. Or maybe put more sensitively, they'd say it like this, well, you know, maybe you just ought to kind of keep your expectations low because you don't really have a, 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 a great chance of, of making a whole lot of yourself. And so you've either lived into those words or maybe you've spent your life's energy trying to prove those words wrong. But did you hear those words? Did you catch them? Making something of yourself. What does that mean? That implies that determining your identity is somehow up to you. You have to make something of yourself. And in America, we learned this at a really early age, probably in preschool, because have you noticed that when you're a little kid, nobody ever asks you what you want to do when you grow up? What do they, what do they ask you? What do you want to be when you grow up? Oh my! Do you realize the power of that question? A very unbiblical idea about identity is subtly planted within us when we're four years old. And since then, maybe you have been encouraged to determine your own identity by your choices. You are what you choose to do. Or by your, your performance, you are what you achieve. You are what you make of yourself in this life. That's not a healthy situation. And honestly, today, a lot of young people today are rebelling against all of these notions, and they are finding all sorts of other ways to determine their own sense of identity, and not all of them are healthy. For some, their identity is now determined almost exclusively by their online persona. They are, they are the sum total of their TikTok output and their Instagram profile. And their identity is only valid in so much as other people either like or follow them which is to say that their identity is now almost completely determined by what other people think of them. 
This is turning out to be literally deadly for some young people who are driven to suicidal despair from the lack of affirmation or from the criticism they receive online. Two other really popular ways to define your identity today are according to the color of your skin or according to your perceived gender or sexuality, what is now called what? Gender identity. That's become to, that defines who we are for some people. You know, Satan has constructed a prison here with a lot of different rooms and wings and cells and sections in it, but countless millions of souls are, are right now locked up there. Peter says this, he says, kingdom people, followers of Jesus Christ have been set free of all this nonsense. How? It, he says, we've been given a brand new identity. So whatever, whatever we were, that is no longer what we are. I want you to look at these, par- these parallel phrases here in verse 9. There are three of them. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter tells you who you are. First of all, you are a chosen race. You're a chosen race. Now, of course, the word race is loaded today, but the Greek word is very basic. It's the word genos. It's where we get our English word gene or um, genetics, genealogy. The word has to do with your origins. So in the Bible, that word has to do often with your family or also where you came from. Where are you a native of? Where are you a native of? You know that old song by Little Big Town uh, called Boondocks? Anyone know that song? That's a catchy song. I love it. I feel no shame. You know that song? I'm proud of where I came from. I was born and raised in the boondocks. The whole point of that song, besides being a really catchy song, is that, is that my identity is determined by where I came from. It's literally part of me. I can feel that muddy water flowing through my veins. In fact, at one point, that song says this. It says, you can take it or leave it. This is me. This is who I am. My identity is determined for all time by the ground under my feet and the dirt over which my hometown was built. And you can take the boy out of the country, but you cannot take the country out of the boy. Right? thought I'd get an amen there from somebody. I don't know. (laughs) But you know what? City folk feel the same way. Native New Yorkers feel like that too about where they come. We all have a strong sense that who we are way deep down inside has a lot to do with where we came from. And actually that's true, but guess what? When you were born again, God changed where you came from. He actually changed where you came from. John says that we who know Jesus were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God or from God. You may have heard that phrase, born from above, describing Christians. That's actually a really good, accurate description. My passport says on it, and I suppose it will always say, that I I am from Lexington, Kentucky. That's where I was born. And indeed, that is where my body entered this earth. But my spirit, the part of me that truly makes me who I am, did not come from Lexington, Kentucky. It didn't come from where I was born. It didn't come from where I grew up in Massachusetts. It didn't even come from my mom and dad. And it certainly didn't come from what other people think of me or what I've achieved or what I decide to label myself. It came from heaven. It came from God. And God has changed me at a level that is much deeper than any of those other things can ever reach. He's given me my identity. I am part of a chosen race. Where I'm from is indeed a huge part of who I am, but where I'm from has been changed. I'm not from around here. And neither are you. Brothers and sisters, do not ever think that anyone, including yourself, that you can, anyone else can ever determine your identity for you with their words, with their actions, with their labels, or with their opinions about you. 
If you're a believer in Jesus, God has chosen you and he has changed you at the most foundational and powerful and lasting way possible. You have new spiritual DNA. And you are free from the identity game. They can hit you with everything the world has to throw at you, but they can never take the heaven out of your spirit because that's where you came from. And that's who you are. That's who you are. You're a chosen race. Second description. You're a royal priesthood. It gets better, okay? So if you're in Christ, then the real you is actually royalty. That's what it says here. You were born into a pretty good family. Uh, Your father, in fact, is, guess who? The king. And one day you will actually come into your inheritance and you will rule the earth along with the rest of the royal family. I'm not just saying that. Second Timothy and Revelation both say very clearly that we will reign with him. Now, we don't have the the time to pursue all the details of what that means, and I'm not sure we could get to all of it, but you might want to meditate on that sometime this week. But one day we will rule. Also, it says you're part of a priesthood, which means if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a priest. You didn't know you were a priest, right? Well, you're a priest. There are several implications of being a priest, one of which we'll kind of talk about later because it talks about our mission. A priest is someone who represents the world before God in prayer and in other ways. But, but even before that, the most basic thing as a priest is you have direct access to God. You do not need to wait in line or call ahead to make an appointment or a reservation to talk to your father, the king. You come boldly before his throne in prayer anytime you want to, including right now if you want to. Or tomorrow at work or in the or in the doctor's office, or, or in the evening when you lie in bed, or when you take that math test next Friday afternoon. They can't stop you. You are not only royalty, you have immediate access to the king of the universe. And then the third phrase, you are a holy nation. A holy nation. The word nation here is the word ethnos, from which we get ethnicity, ethnic group, refers to a group of people with a common language and culture. So it's kind of like when you come to Christ, God actually places you in a different ethnic group. And Peter here is reminding the Gentiles especially, that is, the non-Jewish Christians, that they are part of spiritual Israel now. They have a new ethnos. They have a new national identity. In fact, you may have noticed down in verse 12 that, that Peter tells his readers, who are both Jews and Gentiles, how to act among the Gentiles. That's because Peter no longer thinks of the Gentile Christians as Gentiles. They're basically Jews as far as he's concerned. They're part of God's holy nation. They're Israel extended, as we talked about before. And so now Gentile in verse 12 just means unbeliever. God has given all Christians, Jew and Gentile, a brand new national identity. And I need to point out here that the word nation, just like the word race and the word priesthood, doesn't speak of an individual, it speaks of a group. And I've been focusing to this point on individual blessings, I realize. But, but Peter, Peter doesn't say person, priest, and citizen. He says race, priesthood, and nation. Our identity in Christ is not just an individual thing. We are also part of a brand new family that stretches all the way around the world. If you somehow, if you tomorrow, if you go to Korea or Rwanda or Poland or Paraguay or Egypt and you run into another Christian in that country, Did you know that even though you and that other person probably can't understand a single word that each other says, you 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 definitely have more in common with that person, identity-wise, than you have with the unbelieving person with whom you share an office and who went to your high school and who knows all your friends and who likes all the same food as you do here in Davidson County. And if you've ever been to a church service, 
or any kind of Christian gathering in another country, especially in another language, that came alive to you, didn't it? You realized that, maybe for the first time. You, the, the body of Christ became so much more real to you in that moment. We kingdom people spread all over the world, white, brown, and black, whether we meet in public or whether we meet in hiding, we are all one nation. We are brothers and sisters. We're brothers and sisters. But we're also a holy nation. A holy nation. And holiness implies that God has called us to himself, as it says here, made us his own, as it says in the next phrase, and set us apart for a special purpose. So let's move on from identity to mission, okay? We've talked about who we are, and we better get that straight, but what, okay, so what are we supposed to do? What is our purpose? What is our mission to the unbelieving world and in this unbelieving world? Peter says it has to do with two things, proclamation and conduct. Proclamation and conduct. Okay, proclamation, what does that mean? Well, the word means to announce something publicly, so it means to speak out. It means to declare something out in the open. So what does Peter say we're supposed to proclaim? Peter tells us that we have been set free to proclaim, in the ESV here it says, the excellencies of God. Your translation may just say declare his praises, but, but the word here is, is more specific. It has to do with moral goodness. Moral goodness. There are different aspects of who God is. And, and of course, there are some people in this world today who have chosen to believe against a mountain of evidence to the contrary, that all of the life and all of the beauty and order that they see around them somehow developed through random chance and that God had nothing to do with it. But most of the people in this world don't think that, honestly. An increasing number do, but most, most of the people in this world already know in their heart that God is pretty awesome and that God is pretty powerful, and that whoever created all of this stuff must be a person who is immense and maybe even infinite in wisdom and in power. They know that intuitively. What they don't know intuitively, and what Peter says we need to proclaim to them, is that God is good. Now, not just in the sense of being pure and perfect, they may have a clue about that, but that God is good in the sense of all the other aspects of God's goodness, they need to know about that. We need to tell them that God is also faithful, that God is just, that God is compassionate, that God is patient, that God is forgiving, that God is merciful, that God is generous, that God is kind, God is gracious, God is understanding, God is love. These are the excellencies that Peter is talking about here that we need to get across to people. Well, how do we even know these things? We know about them, verse 10, because we've experienced them. We know that God is both holy and loving, we know that God is both just and merciful, both demanding and forgiving, and we know that because in love, God sent his son to die on a cross to satisfy the demands of his justice so we could receive the mercy that he longed to show us, even though we were sinners, because he loved us. And the more we grasp that fact, the more we grasp that gospel, and the more, the more we do that, the more we will want to proclaim it. Doesn't it make sense that if something makes us excited, if we understand how revolutionary and how cool it really is, that we'll want to talk about it? If you're really captivated by the gospel, you will want to talk about it. The fact that a holy God loves you and has freed you from the pain and the prison of your sin is way more awesome than even the fact that NC State knocked off Clemson yesterday. Yeah, they did. But we get so excited about the latest sports upset or the latest dad joke, or the latest cat meme. And we share those things without thinking about it, right? 
God is full of mercy and compassion. He is ready to forgive all who come to him in faith and repentance, ready to receive this new life and to become his royal sons and daughters. Is that pretty amazing? Do you think you might get a chance to share just a little bit about that or part of it with maybe just one person this week? That's proclamation. The other part of our mission, Peter says, is our conduct, how we act, okay, how we behave, if you want. Peter reminds us here that we are among the Gentiles. Again, the Gentiles are unbelievers here in this context. So, so that, that little word among is a preposition uh, that, that reminds us that this is where God has placed us. It's where we find ourselves is what that word means. So if you, this is important, if you find yourself among a group of mostly non-Christians this week, please realize it's no accident. God has put you there. God has placed you there among them. You are among them. The word among actually reminds me of a little online game that Dawn and I try to play sometimes with our children um, over the internet. It's a game that we are so bad at that our kids spend most of the time laughing at us. But the, ga- the game is called Among Us. And some of you may have played that, I don't know. In this game, here's what happens. A bunch of players, represented by cute little cartoon characters, are the crew in charge of keeping a spaceship running. However, one person is assigned to be the imposter, and it is his or her job to sabotage the mission and try to kill all the other crew members before getting exposed, okay? Now, when I say kill, these are little cartoons, okay? So it's not a lot of, it's that kind of thing. But y'all need to know who the imposter is, but you can't tell who the imposter is just by looking at the cartoon character because they all pretty much look alike. You only begin to suspect when that person starts to act differently than everybody else. Like if he's loitering around watching everyone else work and not doing anything. Or if he jumps into a ventilation duct. Or if you see him running away from the scene of a dead cartoon body. That's when you begin to suspect that maybe this person who was among you as one of you is actually a different kind of person. Listen, it's maybe a negative example versus a positive one, but it's the same way with us living among our unbelieving friends and neighbors and coworkers. Listen, I need to tell you this. None of you here today looks like a Christian. You just don't. Sorry, but you don't. You know why? Because a Christian is not defined by what somebody looks like. You can dress like you think a Christian should dress, whatever that means. You can put on the most angelic smile possible, and you can, you can put a Jesus bumper sticker on your car if you want to, but that will not convince me there is anything truly Christian about you. It isn't until someone sees the way that you act that they should begin to realize that something is going on inside of you that they have not yet experienced. Now, what does that action look like? What kind of behavior are we talking about? How do Christians act? Peter says in verse 12 that our conduct should be honorable. Now, your translation may say proper, it may say honest, it may just say good, but the, the Greek word carries the connotation of noticeably beautiful. Noticeably beautiful. It's an outward expression of an inner beauty. Remember those characteristics of God back in verse 9? His excellencies? Think of those. God is truthful. You're truthful. God is compassionate. So are you. And God's people are, are generous. We're faithful, patient, forgiving helpful, kind. And we're not just pretending either because God has made us new people on the inside. And so our lives are truly attractive to others, although what that really is is an outward expression of an inward change. We're not just playing. You know, we can do a lot of things to make our church more attractive to to seekers. 
We can. We can, we can spruce up our sanctuary. We can clean the carpets. We did that a couple days ago. We can tighten up our music. We can get our welcome process more organized. We can beautify the grounds. We can buy more expensive coffee. You know, we could. But those things don't really work very well. They may bring in a certain kind of person that has a consumer mentality who is looking for a certain list of things in a church service, but if we really want to make our church attractive and make the gospel attractive to those people who desperately need Jesus, the greatest advertisement is our lives, and it's really the only one. There is no substitute. There is no more powerful church growth strategy, if you want to call it that, than a family of believers living beautiful lives in community while proclaiming the excellencies of the God who brought them out of hopeless darkness and into his wonderful light. Now, as you probably gathered from all this, Peter kind of hints at it here. He does more than hint, but, but the world is going to react to this in different ways. Some people are going to speak against us and even accuse us of evil. But others, and maybe some of the same people ultimately, will, will be moved to glorify God by believing in Jesus when God steps into their lives. You see, Peter reminds us here that although we are a real nation, we are a nation, we're a holy nation, but we're a hidden nation. We're a nation that doesn't really have a geographic center. We're a nation scattered among the nations of the world. And I'm going to end with this, but, but there are there are three things we can do in this situation that are not helpful, and we could take a long time talking about it, but I'm just going to mention them. There are three things we can do that are not helpful, and then one thing that really is helpful. And, and, and most of us tend to lean into one of the three things that we shouldn't do, okay? One thing we shouldn't do as believers in this world is to revolt, to try to take over, to try to take over the nations of the world, to, to form Christian nations and bring God's kingdom by force or coercion. That's one thing. Second thing it's not a good idea to do is to assimilate, to forget who we are in Christ and just become one with the world, just to lose our distinctiveness. And the third mistake is to separate, to, totally, to try to get out from among the people of the world in order to protect ourselves from their influence. Our goal is none of these things. In proclaiming the excellencies of God and living beautiful, attractive lives among people who don't yet know Jesus, our goal is to engage them to engage with the world, to retain our identity while fulfilling our mission, to establish not centers of power, but alien outposts in this world, as we've talked about. As many weeks ago, we've talked about being both salt and light. Approaching our friends and neighbors, not like we're the ones who have it all together and can tell them how to live, but as those who are not any better than they are, but as those who have, as Peter says, received mercy through the undeserved grace and favor of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In the next couple of weeks, um, what I want to do is I want to launch out from these verses and I want to look, as we begin to close things down, at a couple of case studies from the book of Acts. And I want to ask, what does it look like when a real, live church um, starts to live out their true kingdom identity in the midst of a hostile, unbelieving world that is desperately in need of the gospel. So that's where we're going over the next couple of weeks. Let's close today in prayer.